God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a chance now that we have to pause and just ask you to speak to us. Lord, many of us have not spent significant time in 2 John. It seems like a small little postcard at the end of the Bible. But we're trusting that your spirit is going to speak through, through me or in spite of me this morning, but to everybody here. And so, God, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you help us to understand the truth and to comprehend your great love? And so, God, I, just, I give you this time. Would you do with it what you see fit? Awaken our hearts to the beauty of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Just a short reading through 2 John, you'll, you'll notice that the two themes are truth and love. <clears throat> that as God's people, we need to be committed to the truth, and we need to be committed to love. If I, stop, if I step back as a pastor and think about, if our church was known for two things, these would be pretty good. If we were known as a community of people that valued and upheld and taught and submitted to the truth, that'd be a great thing. But then also with that, if we weren't just a church that committed itself to the truth, but also a church that was defined by scandalous, radical love for one another, that'd be a beautiful thing, wouldn't it? Now, if we were only committed to one of those things, it'd be a train wreck. Truth without love can be cruel. It's powerless. Love without truth is flimsy at best, sentimental, not helpful. John writes to this church, and he says, we need to be committed to both. And so it shouldn't surprise us that John, who simply refers to himself in this letter as the elder, writes a short letter to this church that in many ways is like a Cliff Notes version of 1 John that we looked at last week. And he challenges this church to be committed to the truth and to be committed to love and not put up with false teachers. So before I read it, I just kind of want to set a little bit of the context like I said, it's the second shortest book in the Bible. You can read it on your audio version Bible in one minute and 44 seconds. So we'll read the whole thing. Um, but I want you to imagine the church that John is writing to with me. In Acts chapter 2, the church explodes. And in one day, when the Spirit falls, 3,000 people are added. Within a, a couple decades, the, the church has not just saturated Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, the surrounding areas, but also has gone to all of the nations of the earth. Rome has a church, and all throughout the Roman Empire are churches dotting the landscape in most of the significant towns. The church has exploded. But now, a few decades after that, after most of the other apostles and disciples have been killed for their faith and their allegiance to Jesus... John is the only one left. And he goes to Ephesus and kind of oversees the church in Ephesus and the surrounding area. And during that time, he picks up his pen to devote himself to the truth and to defend the truth about who Jesus is and why he came. Now, if I've learned anything about races, especially long-distance races, it's this. The person who starts out the fastest doesn't always win. I've been recently become a fan of cross country, and it's amazing how often the person who shoots out of the gate and is leading at the quarter turn ends in the middle or sometimes at the end, because they didn't save anything till the end. I found that the same thing can often be true of faith. Some, some people who start out so well kind of fizzle and don't run very fast toward the end. 
And that can actually be true of churches as well. So here you have John writing to churches after the initial zeal has, has worn off a little bit, and now they are threatened by false teaching about Jesus as they are waiting for him to return, but he hasn't yet returned. So that's the context of 2 John. Here we go. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but to the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. There's Second John postcard, if there ever was a postcard of a letter. What we see in 2 John is a, a greeting in verses 1 to 3, kind of an exhortation in verses 4 to 6, a warning in verses 7 to 11, and then a final greeting that promises to visit and explain more fully in verses 12 and 13. Here's the big idea. We are to embody love and truth in a community of faith. The greeting, he says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. I've already been referring that the elder is simply the Apostle John, the last living disciple that's in humility, just gives himself the title, the elder. Almost all Bible scholars would agree that the type of writing and style that we see here in 2 John is the same as 3 John and 1 John and the Gospel of John, that it's the same author writing all of these things. And so we can conclude that the, the Apostle John is writing to the elect lady. Now, that's a really weird way to phrase a letter, isn't it? The elect lady. Who is that? Well, there are some who are like, well, it must be a, a woman who's, who's, a, who's a house church leader, has the gift of hospitality, and hosts or leads a, a house church in her home. And a few people believe that because he says, oh, the, the, the chosen lady, the elect lady. But most scholars actually think that the chosen lady is a metaphor for a church a small church in the surrounding area of Ephesus, and he writes it using familial language because he wants to hammer home the truth that in Christ we're family. He talks about Jesus the Son and God the Father, and 
Therefore, it's very natural for him to use familial language when speaking about another church. Now, the reason why I think it's referring to a church as opposed to an individual, not a lot is at stake. The the same things are generally true, whether it's to an individual in the church or to a church as a whole, but but really sets it apart as two things. Verse 4, he says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now, this would be an incredibly awkward way to say it if it was an actual woman with actual children. Hey, I'm glad that some of your kids are walking with Jesus. It actually fits a lot better when we, when we think of the, the elect lady or the chosen bride, the, the chosen woman to be the church, and the, the children then are the members of the church to say some of the members of the church are walking in the truth. Uh, secondly, at the end of the letter, he, he says, the children of your elect sister greet you. Now, that would be a really weird way of saying your nieces and nephews say hi. It's actually a way of saying the church that I lead, your, your sister church, the members of this church, the children of this church say hi as well and greet you as I do as I long to come and see you. And so it doesn't matter fully one way or another, but I tend to agree with most of the scholars that say, I think this is a metaphor for a, a small church in the surrounding area of Ephesus. And he writes to this church, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. What in the world is he talking about? See, John writes, and he uses all of these church words and languages, and we're like, I think I don't understand what he's saying. It's simple. And then he uses them again and uses them again. And you're like, what in the world did he just say? I love you in the truth, and not just me, but all who love the truth. He's saying, I love you because the truth of Jesus unites us, and it's not just me who loves you, it's all the people who believe in the truth of Jesus Christ that also love you because it's Jesus that now unites us, not love. We don't unify as a church around unity, and we don't unify around love, we unify around shared convictions about Jesus, who he says he is, and what he says he does. Namely, save us and reconcile us to God and to each other. He says, To the elect lady, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but all who love the truth. That's, we just talked about that. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. He says the truth that abides in us is doing something in us. We, we hold fast to it, and it is shaping and forming us. And it was doing this not just now, but it will do so forever. It doesn't change. Now, You wouldn't think that a claim of truth like this would be all that controversial. And it wasn't in John's day, but in our day? Oh, you better believe. To claim to believe and know the truth has put you in the crosshairs with a lot of other people claiming other truths and other understandings. In fact, some people even go so far as to say that to make a truth claim is actually just pulling a power lever to have power and influence over somebody else, that we can't actually know the truth, but that all those who claim to know the truth are simply trying to manipulate and move each other around. Uh, Where does that come from? Because here's the thing. There are a lot of people who claim that a lot of things are true, and they're not all true. In fact, sometimes they are contradicting one another, and the the challenge becomes, what do we do when there are very kind and, and smart people who believe different things? Like people that are smarter than us that disagree with one another. If they can't figure out the truth, what hope do we have in in figuring out the truth? And so sometimes people try to deal with that idea by saying, you know what, we all just get part of the truth. We're all saying the truth, but just different parts of the same thing. And one of the best illustrations to understand that way of thinking is, is what I call the blind people and the elephant. Has anybody heard that one before? 
the blind men and the elephant. Okay, it goes something like this. There were like four or five blind men that were trying to describe what an elephant is like. And the, the person who was touching the elephant's trunk said, you know, an elephant is like a snake. It's muscular and flexible. An elephant is like a snake. And the person who touched the elephant's ear is like, no, an elephant is like a big, broad leaf. And then the person who's touching the elephant's tusk is saying, no, an elephant is sharp and hard and pointy like a spear. And another person who's grabbing the elephant's leg is like, no, an elephant is like a tree trunk. It's firm and it's rooted and it's round. And the person who's touching the side of the elephant said, no, an elephant is like a brick wall. It's big and massive and it doesn't move. And the point of that illustration is that all of them are right, but they're just describing different parts of the elephant. And yay, that sounds humble, doesn't it? Sounds great. So, so the Buddhists are right, and the Christians are right, and the Muslims are right, and the Jews are right, but they're all just describing a different aspect of God. And even the secularists are right in their own way. They find their own truth. Now, what sounds really humble is actually unbelievably arrogant. You know why? Because the person telling that analogy is the only one who claims to see. The pluralist, the person who's like, everybody just kind of has part of the truth, is the only one in there who's claiming not to be blind. Everybody else is. So what sounds really humble is actually unbelievably arrogant. But here's the thing. An elephant has all of those qualities, but that's not what an elephant is. It's the combined makeup of that that makes it true and that describes what an elephant is. So can we know the truth? And if so, is claiming to know the truth dangerous? I mean, right now there are lots of people in Palestine that think killing Jews is what their God wants them to do. And there's a lot of people in Palestine who don't believe that. And there are Hindus in India that believe that persecuting Christians and Muslims and Buddhists is what their truth requires of them. Or even in this country, there are so many truth games that people are making. Some of them true, some of them not. I mean, some people believe in the heart of their being that the 2020 election was stolen. Or that the earth is flat. Or that the earth is round. Or that, um, that gravity is real. Or that Jesus never actually lived. He's just a figment of ancient imagination. Or that God is real or that God is not. Or that science will save us. Or that science is limited. Or that AI will be the next horizon in human advancement. Or that AI will be the end of us. All of these things, people are saying, that's true. So how do we sort that out, all of these different truth claims? Especially if we think they're just a means of power used by other people to kind of leverage us so that we do what they want them to do. Is that what religion is? Is that what Christianity is? Simply a way for the church to perpetuate itself and to make money and to manipulate you and to say, like, affirming what it is that we want you to affirm? Or is it the true story of the world that helps us make sense of everything else? C.S. Lewis described it like Christianity is like the sun. Not only do I see it, but because of its light, I see everything else. It was an all-encompassing truth that kind of made sense of the world for him. So what do you do then if there's very kind and intelligent people that believe different things from you? Do you give up hope that the truth can be known? Some people do. Or how in the world are we to live amongst people that disagree over what the truth is? You guys tracking with me? This is the world that we live in, isn't it? How do we solve the problem of multiple truth claims? Well, one of the ways that we do that is by bifurcating our life into kind of real-world truth and, and private truth. 
Nancy Piercy uses this kind of approach, which was in many ways how I thought as a high school student in, uh, in public school, trying to figure out what's true, what, what my church is telling me, what my family is telling me, and what my teachers are telling me. And I'm not saying I'm against public school. In fact, my kids are in that. But there's, there's a challenge that exists. And here's, here's kind of the illustration she says. A lot of people live in a house with two stories. And on the first story, the bottom floor is the public sphere, the floor that deals with facts and rationality, and verifiable truths, and science, and business, the way that the world works and operates. But that the upper floor is the private sphere, the the floor of personal preferences, and values, and religion. And the way to play this game is that everybody kind of shares the bottom floor and interacts on the bottom floor, and then whatever you believe on the top floor is kind of your personal belief as long as it doesn't impact anybody else. And in a lot of ways, a lot of us live that way. As if there's values and religion and personal preferences here, but, but I never actually bring those things to bear into the public sphere. Well, that only works when there's a kind of shared understanding of what is true and good and right. You see, that worked for a while because most of the people on their upper floor, they kind of all agreed on base level things like morality and a a Judeo-Christian type ethic. Not completely, but enough where it kind of carried the day. But, But what happens then when we don't agree on any of those things anymore, on even what is good and right and true, you end up with the chaos that exists in our current world. And isn't it interesting that right now the only people that seem unwelcome to bring their upper floor to bear on the bottom floor are Christians? They're the only ones that are told to stay out. Everybody else brings in their presuppositions and understandings and truths, but Christians, that's bringing religion into the public sphere. Oh, we are all so much more religious than we like to think. Some of you guys are thinking at this point, Kyle, can we just get back to 2 John? (laughs) Yes. But I wanted to just kind of frame this understanding of the truth that way because this is the world that you find yourself living in. This is the the tensions that you experience day in and day out. And John, is he doesn't live in that world. And so he's going to actually make truth claims that have bearing on not just you, but everybody and the world because he sees the world as the revelation of God and that this is true and that Jesus is who he claims to be so that whether you believe in him or not, he has a authority over your life. He has a bearing on your life and that we need to say true things about him. John writes, the truth matters and the truth unites us. He finishes his greeting. You're like, we're just in the greeting? Yeah, we're just in the greeting. He finishes his greeting in verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Now, this is a customary greeting that we often read, and it's filled with religious words, and we're like, that sounds nice, but this is what it means. May grace be with you, meaning God's unmerited kindness toward you continue. May mercy be with you. May you continue to not get what you deserve, but rather be the recipient of God's mercy toward you. And may peace be with you. This was the typical Jewish greeting of shalom, not just the absence of conflict in your life, but the rightness of God's well-ordered life be with you from God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. And then he qualifies these things. He says, may all of these things be with us in truth and in love. Just a quick reading. We know that this is about truth and love. He, he introduces it that way, and then he exhorts them in verses 4 to 6. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, 
not as though I were writing to you a new command, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So what does he want them to do? He wants them to walk in the truth, and he wants them to walk in love. This is love, that you walk according to the commandments. This is the commandments, that you walk in love. This feels kind of circular, doesn't it? It, 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 but that's kind of John's writing style. To walk in the truth is to live your life as a Christian, to live in light of the reality that God is real and that Jesus is the Messiah and the one Savior of the world. And John seems to go around and around because you cannot separate love and truth. And if you do, they will either not be true or they will not be loving. John Piper put it this way, that love and truth aim at one another and shape one another. So the truth is that is loving is the truth that will set you free. To love rightly is to love truly or in light of reality as it actually is. That's the kind of love that sets one free. This is similar to what John wrote in his gospel when he tried to describe Jesus and how Jesus reveals to us the Father. You know in John chapter 1, it's, it's kind of the, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the Father's glory. Glory is of the one Father full of grace and truth. That Jesus perfectly reflects to us God's likeness, his character by being the perfect embodiment of truth and grace. And here now, he writes in a similar vein of truth and love. What is God's grace but his love that is undeserved? Here's the thing. Love without truth is sentimental. It is flimsy. It lacks character. If you accept everything, it might feel loving in the moment, but it isn't actually loving. It needs to be grounded in the truth of how things really are. You might feel loving by buying an alcoholic a bottle of whiskey because that's what they asked of you, but anyone who's walked that road knows that's the least loving thing you can possibly do. Even though it's what they want, even though it's what they ask for, even though you want to meet their, their desires and their needs, you know that that's not actually what they need, that that will harm them and destroy them. And so love without truth is flimsy and sentimental. It's not love at all. But truth without love can be hard and cruel, and it lacks power. There's no power to influence anyone because deep down they know that while you claim to know the truth, you don't actually care about them. Truth without love can be cruel. So as Christians, this church is told by John that we ought to embody the truth in a loving way and love in light of what is true and good. If, if we as a church were known for our stance on truth and our scandalous love, that would be a beautiful thing. But when we're known for only one of those, it's a distortion of who God is. Even if it might feel loving, or even if it means we feel like we're standing on the truth. They must go hand in hand. With that being said or exhorted, John moves on to a warning in verses 7 to 9. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. John wards the church 
of false teachers that are coming, and he gives them this command. Don't welcome them. Don't greet them. Don't platform them. They will mislead you because they don't abide by the truth of who Jesus is. Now, in John's day, they didn't have the majority of the New Testament compiled and available for all the churches. And most of the eyewitnesses of Jesus had died off or were killed for their allegiance to him. John alone, as the remaining disciple or apostle, is kind of the arbiter or the, the person who's determining, no, that's true and that's not. This is who he was and this is what he said and this is what he didn't say. And so he writes down a gospel and he fills it with a bunch of stories that we didn't learn in the other gospels, giving us insight into who Jesus was and from that insider type view. And now he writes and he says, you need to beware. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian actually is. Not everyone who takes on the name of Jesus actually says true things about him because the default posture that they had as a, as a persecuted minority is, oh, you're with us. Well, what do you have to share with us? And John writes this and he says, I'd love to come to you in person. I don't want to do this over pen and paper, but I, I need to give you a heads up to not even welcome them and don't platform them. Now, what exactly are these people teaching about Jesus? Well, verse 7 seems to imply there are those who confess that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, that he wasn't actually human, uh, who he claimed to be. The Son of God entered into the world in human flesh. Now, why is it that this was gaining prominence in their day? It, see, to a Greek mind, especially a Greek philosophical mind, what was spiritual was considered higher and better and good, and what was physical or filled with matter was seen as less. It was dirty, like they would look down on menial work and they would look up to philosophy and philosophers. And so the idea of God being spirit was not hard for them to get their mind around. That was their ideal, at least in their mind. But the idea that this God would come and enter into humanity in a body? Unthinkable. And so they would say things like, well, Jesus just appeared to be human, but he, was, he wasn't really human. He was God because he can't be both God and human, but oh, he was. He says, when they say that about Jesus, they don't know him. I know him. Jesus did come in the flesh. He did come as a human being. Now, why is that important? Because it shows us the, the willingness of God to redeem matter and bodies and things. It means that the final state of Christians of people is not this disembodied spiritual realm, but rather a renewed heaven and earth and renewed bodies that Jesus came in the flesh and he died as a man to redeem us, including our bodies, which is a huge part of being human. And that simply being physical and having matter doesn't make one less, but rather God entered into humanity in a human body. And those who deny this aren't talking to you about the real Jesus. This would morph into kind of a philosophical belief or heresy known as Gnosticism that believed that Jesus only appeared to be a man but wasn't actually a man. John says this person who teaches this is, is bringing the spirit of Antichrist. They're not teaching you the truth. They're a false teacher. Watch yourselves and watch out. What else were they teaching? Well, verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. This is the person who says, yeah, yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need this. Jesus, it goes beyond Jesus as the Savior to a, a deeper truth. But when he says when you go beyond Jesus, you lose the whole gospel. Jesus plus anything is actually nothing. The gospel with additions to it ceases to be the gospel. And so what it means is if if you believe in Jesus and give X amount of dollars, then you will be saved. That's going beyond the good news of the gospel, right? Or if you believe in Jesus and 
have a quiet time every day for an hour, then you'll be saved. No, it is what Jesus has done that saves us. He comes and lives the life that we should have lived. He dies as a substitute for our sins. He rises in victory over Satan's sin and death that by faith in his name, all that he accomplished is applied to us. And when we add something to that, we lose it all. It's no longer grace. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't teach about generosity. 15% of his teaching had to do with money and our use of it. And it's pretty clear he wants us to be generous. Nor does it mean that Jesus doesn't care for you to take time and, and get away. Jesus modeled himself time where he would go and spend time with the Father in prayer and in solitude and that these are good and right things. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus does it, not Jesus plus something else, whatever that might be. So the summary of, of the false teaching of his day is that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh or that Jesus plus something else is what you really need in order to be saved. And they were to be on guard against that. In fact, they were not even to welcome people into the church or greet them. Now, do you know what's crazy about this? The Apostle Paul predicted that this would happen in Acts chapter 20. The last time that he was with the Ephesian elders, this is what he said in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is the very region that John is now pastoring in 20, 30 years later. Ephesus and the surrounding areas. This prophecy was fulfilled within a generation. So what should they do to uphold the truth? Well, verses 9 to 10. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you who does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, this might be written to a woman who says, don't show hospitality to him, but most likely it's to a church that says, don't let him in, don't platform him, don't give him a voice, or you become complicit with their false teaching and their lies. Finally, he closes with this greeting from him and the church. Though I have much to write with, to you, I would rather not send an email <laughs> or a text. No, he was using the cutting-edge technology of his day. I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face -face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Why doesn't he want to write it all down? Although that would provide clarity, it doesn't provide tone and context and warmth of how to deal with people in a nuanced kind of way. And so he says, I know I can't be there right away. I need to give you a heads up that this is going on, but I plan to come to you and to kind of talk, it all, talk, talk you through it all. And when I do, my joy will be complete. My love will overflow because I love you guys. And not only me, but the other church loves you as well, and they send greetings. Now, that's 2 John. What do we learn from 2 John? Whew. Two things. Truth and love go hand in hand. As the people of God, we must embody both. To be faithful to the gospel of Jesus, we must take our stand and declare it to be true. We must speak the truth unapologetically and bring our lives into conformity with this truth. But we also must love scandalously because that's who our God is. He is truth and he is love. And most of us, I find, have a tendency to err on one side or another. You track it with me? Some of us often articulate and cling to the truth and declare the truth, but we do so in not loving ways. And others have a way of agreeing with everybody because we just want to be loved. We don't want to contradict them. We don't want to correct them. And so we tend to fall off either toward truth or toward love, but we don't embody both fully. Now, 
Which are you? If you don't know, I promise you, your spouse can probably tell you. Or your roommate could probably tell you. As a church, we are to embody both truth and love. What that means is that when people come here, they find a scandalous welcome and the hospitality of Lord Jesus Christ. And they might disagree with some of the things that we say. And they might be like, you know what, I don't believe what you guys believe, but man, the way you guys love, that's what I've been longing for. Now, we're going to continue to share the truth, but they should experience our love. See, here's the thing. The gospel of Jesus is offensive. It is. I need to come to grips with the fact that I'm a sinner separated from God and deserving of his judgment. And not everybody wants to come to that conclusion. They consider it bad news, not good news. Oh, but the good news is so good, but you don't get there until you understand the bad news. It's like you don't understand why you would need chemotherapy if you don't think you have cancer, right? And the gospel is so much better than chemotherapy, let me tell you that. It only brings life, it doesn't kill. As a, true, as a church, we need to embody truth and love, and so do you as a Christian. Second, false teaching is dangerous, and it leads us away from God. Now, the type of false teaching that exists in our day is probably different. I mean, most of us are not facing ancient Greek Gnosticism. Most of us are saying, yeah, Jesus came as a human. Well, we have all this evidence about him, but we actually wrestle with, but was he actually God, right? We're, we're facing lots of different false teaching, but maybe not Gnosticism. We certainly are facing the, the, the temptation to add to the gospel or go beyond the gospel. That happens all the time, right? So what exactly do we need to be aware of when it comes to false teaching? Well, I could go on and on and on, but here's a few of the false teaching things of the day. The truth is something that you create and decide for yourself. That's wrong. It's not true. Yes, our biases and our story often shape and color our understanding of the truth, but we do not create truth. We either perceive it rightly or wrongly. Now, this plays out in a hundred different ways, but sometimes in our gender, in our sexuality, how we perceive ourselves, it's like we are not bound by anything material. We are not bound by anything true and unmovable, but we can just determine for ourselves who we are and who we're not. And in fact, to not do that is to not embrace your authentic self and to not be true to yourself. Might I tell you that in embracing that, you're actually, what sounds like freedom is a whole lot of bondage. Because the thing about your authentic self is that it changes all the time. Because it's shifting sand. And it's based on your feelings. And if you're anything like me, and I'm not the most emotional guy in the world, but my feelings change all the time. And sometimes they're wrong. And sometimes they're right. Wouldn't it be better if rather than having to discover who we are and figure it out for ourselves, instead we embraced who God told us we are? As his image bearers? Fallen and yet redeemable. In Christ, loved and cherished, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what he has done. See, it's not until we embrace what God says about us that we're free to simply be.
other false teaching that abounds. You can't actually know the truth because of our biased media. And I'm tempted to believe that sometimes because our media is biased, isn't it? But here's often the death cycle that happens there. Because we can't really know what's true, it leads us to a sense of defeatism or apathy in the face of crazy evil. And it chips away at us and it allows us to embrace absurdities and contradictions that both can't be true. And sometimes then we determine what is true based on the source rather than what they are actually telling us. Now, it can be difficult for us to discern the truth, right? There's a lot of misinformation out there. But the result of that is not just to give up and say, I guess we're all toast. But rather to have something that does anchor us in the truth and a firm understanding that I might not be able to know all of it, but I can know truth truly. And that in many ways, my north star, my, my, my point of firm foundation is what God has told us about himself and about reality. Other false teaching are things like the prosperity gospel, that if you have the right kind of faith or you give enough money, everything will work out for you. God will make you healthy and rich. And Here's the thing. I think most of us would agree that the disciples of Jesus probably had a greater quality of faith than all of us. And all but one of them died for their faith. None of them were rich. And they had great faith. So the idea that if I just have enough faith that everything in my life will go swimmingly is not true. Now sometimes it is, but not all the time. And, and actually in an insidious way what that does is it just kind of inverts the gospel and it takes the real good news and it makes it not the good news. Here, here, let me, the good news of the gospel is that we get to be in relationship with God, but what the prosperity gospel does is it actually flips it and says, the good news of the gospel is that you get everything you want, God's gifts included. And rather than being satisfied in God, we become dependent upon his, whether his good gifts arrive or not. Here's the thing, God knows how he created you to be, and he knows that even the greatest of his gifts will not satisfy you completely, only he will. So he's not going to turn into an idol giver as if that's the good news. Now, does God answer prayer? Absolutely. Does God bring healing? Yes. Does God provide for his people? Yes and amen. But it's far more nuanced than that. Now, I could go over and over and over all the different types of false teaching, but we'd be here until a lot longer. How is it that we can understand the truth in this ever-shifting, crazy world? Two things for you. Two just really practical things at the end. One, know what God has already revealed to be true. Be a student of your Bible. Unlike the people in John's day, we actually have the Bible written and compiled for us so that we can know without a shadow of a doubt what God has said. Study that. Know that so that you can become more discerning in the truth. Second, the best place and way to practice truth in love is in the context of a loving church community. There is greater discernment that happens together than simply when we are isolated with myself and my Bible. Our personal biases and hang-ups aren't just affirmed and confirmed, but often challenged and healed in the context of a loving community that feels like family. Jesus said in John chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth and love. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it anchors us in the truth but calls us to love beyond our natural ability to love. 
Would you help us to embody those things? Not just as individuals, but as a church. To be filled with truth and filled with love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.